uncomplaining forth and you are listening here we go to tuesday april 9th rumination in the year of our lord 2019 i'm pastor tom baker and as is our custom we take a look at the hymn for the following sunday and there were actually two hymns for the following sunday the one is a lamb goes uncomplaining forth the other one was all glory laud and honor We've chosen A Lamb Goes Uncomplaining Forth, and you'll find that out in a moment. But first of all, I want to say that Pastor Mark Smith is on another assignment right now, so he will not be with us today. And uh, we want to indicate that we're just about ready to go into Holy Week, Palm Sunday. What was interesting is that the readings for Palm Sunday really don't talk about so much Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's also known as the Sunday of Christ's Passion. In fact, uh, one of the readings is so long, it's two chapters long. And then that's one of the gospel readings they have. Another of the gospel readings is a little shorter, but it's still pretty long. And it's John 12. 20 to 43. So what we're going to do is take a look at this hymn and we're going to make a point. There are a number of hymns that can be sung by any religion. I always remember going out on campouts with the youth, the Walther League, etc. And we would sing hymns like, they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. And I kept thinking, well, you know, There's nothing in the hymn that doesn't permit a Muslim to sing that. They know we are Muslims by our love. Or a Jew, they know we are Jewish by our love. In fact, love seems to be one of the big ingredients in almost all religions. In contrast to Christianity, where the big word isn't so much just love, but gift. See, it's one thing for you to have an idol that wants you to love others. It's quite another thing for you to have a God that loves you more than you ever can love anybody else. And that's, of course, Christianity. We're taking a look at a hymn that a Muslim could not sing that a person who's Jewish could not sing, that a person who's not a Christian could not sing. This is a very, very good hymn, and we ought not be surprised 
because it was written by Paul Gerhardt, one of the great hymnal writers after the time of the Lutheran Reformation. He just really knew how to put together phrases uh, from the Bible. Now, the hymn I'm looking at has three texts, Isaiah 53, Exodus 12, and John 1. But you could put 20 more down. See, this is a nice thing about Lutheran hymnody, though it may not always simply just tell a Bible verse. It often uses Bible verses to give a, to bring across our understanding. So let's, without further ado, take a look. This is a great hymn to use for children who want to know what did Jesus do that was so great? Who is Jesus? So it begins. A lamb goes uncomplaining forth, the guilt of sinners bearing, and laden with the sins of earth, none else the burden sharing. Goes patient on, grows weak and faint, to slaughter led without complaint. That spotless life to offer, he bears the stripes, the wounds, the lies, the mockery, and yet replies, all this I gladly suffer. Now you can understand why no other religion can possibly sing this hymn, except for those who are Christians, because it has the very ingredient of Christianity that differentiates us from every other religion. First of all, Jesus is referred to as a lamb. Where's that? Well, John the baptizer. Behold, the lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And that's almost the first line. The lamb goes uncomplaining forth the guilt of sinners bearing. Now, that reminds me of Luke chapter 15, where the lost sheep, what does the shepherd do? He finds the lost sheep, puts it on his shoulders, and bears it home, which is really looking at him taking the sins, our sins, to the cross. In fact, that's what it says. The guilt of sinners bearing and laden with the sins of earth, none else the burden sharing. You see, God and God alone takes the burden of your sins. Nobody else shares in that burden. This is a really important point to make because you've got even some Christian religions that give an idea that if you say enough, prayers or do enough penance or something like that, that uh, the saints will have less time in, say, a purgatory or something like that, as though you can bear the sins of your loved ones. No. Nobody else the burden was sharing. He goes patient on. Now, when he was before Pontius Pilate, he could have really argued with Pontius Pilate. He was innocent. But he patiently took on what he was going to take on, namely the sins of the world. It also reminds you of the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter cuts off the high priest's servant's ear. His name was Malchus. 
And Jesus says, look, if I wanted, I could bring a legion of angels down. Put away your sword. So he is patiently going to what he knew from just reading the Old Testament was his destiny. And as he goes, he grows weak and faint to slaughter, led without complaint, the spotless life to offer. See, this is why Jesus was able to die for the sins, not just of one other person, but for the whole world. Because number one, he was God. And number two, he had a spotless life. That, that's where the devil really tried hard to get Jesus to sin. Because had the devil been successful in getting Jesus to sin even once, then he would have had to die for his own sins. But he was spotless. Another way of saying that, he was sinless. And he bears the stripes, the wounds, the lies. Once more, you can go back to the Old Testament, and there they are. Uh, Isaiah talks about him being whipped and, and the wounds he would bear. And how about the lies? Well, the lies were, of course, during the courtroom, so to speak, where people said, well, Jesus said, I will destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. Trying to give the impression he was talking about the real temple rather than his body. And the mockery. What was the mockery? The soldiers. They put on a royal robe, so to speak, a purple robe, and making fun of him, as were the Pharisees. Yet, how does he reply? The last phrase in this verse. All this I gladly suffer. That word gladly, does that bother you? If you take a look at Luke 15, after he picks up that big stinking sheep and puts it on his shoulders, which no shepherd would ever do, he says, for the joy that was before him, he picked up the sheep, took him back home. That word joy is also found in Hebrews. It talks about the joy he had on the way to the cross. He was joyous for two reasons. Number one, he was fulfilling the will of the Father. And number two, in fulfilling that will, he was saving a lot of people. Reminds me of Joseph when, and I'm talking about the Joseph in Egypt who was sold by his brothers, when they finally come to get fruit from him and he appears to them and then announces that he is Joseph, boy, they think, oh boy, he's going to get even with us for what we have done. And what does Joseph say? No, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And because of what you had done, God used me to save thousands and thousands of people from starvation in the same way that Jesus saves billions of people from eternal hell. Stanza two. This lamb is Christ, the soul's great friend, the lamb of God, our savior, whom God the father chose to send to gain for us his favor. Go forth, my son, the father said, and free my children from their dread of guilt and condemnation. The wrath and stripes are hard to bear, but by your passion they will share the fruit of your salvation. 
The Lamb is Christ, the soul's great friend. I was listening to the radio as a comedy show, and an individual was saying when he was a boy, he was looking forward to adopting someone, even after he got married. And the comedian said, well, that is because he wanted to have a friend. And everybody kind of laughed. Well, we don't have to adopt God because God has adopted us. And the Lamb is Christ, the soul's great friend, the Lamb of God, our Savior. So we have the word Christ, which is the same word. It's the Greek. The Hebrew is Messiah, namely the anointed one. And he's the Lamb of God, our Savior. You won't find another religion in the whole world where the God becomes your Savior. He becomes instead maybe an example or your rule maker, etc. But Jesus becomes the Savior whom God the Father chose to send to gain for us his favor. And you got to think about that phrase. Jesus came to gain for us the favor of God. Now, how could he do that? By taking away the punishment. When God said in the day that you sin, death will be the result. It could have been our death, but Jesus took it upon himself. And the father said, go forth, my son, and free my children from their dread. What's our dread? Of guilt and condemnation. That's what every person dreads. If you look at every religion, it has a path that you are to follow in order not to have to pay for your guilt and be condemned for it. And every religion has a different path. In Christianity, the path is one that Jesus walks for you. And he carries you on his shoulders in doing that. Yes, the wrath and stripes are hard to bear. But by your passion, they will share the fruit of your salvation. By whose passion? By the passion of Jesus. By his suffering, his crucifixion. They will share the fruit of your salvation. What's the fruit of salvation? It's the forgiveness of sins. It's the robe of righteousness. It's the many, many promises found in the gospel. I will never leave you nor forsake you. No temptation will come to you beyond what you're able to endure. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. And these are shared with us by means of the holy sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Stanza three. Yes, Father, yes, most willingly, I'll bear what you command me. My will conforms to your decree. I'll do what you have asked me. O wondrous love, what have you done? The Father offers up his Son, desiring our salvation. O love, how strong you are to save. You lay the one into the grave who built the earth's foundation. Boy, Gerhardt really has some great words there. Now, when you take a look at stanza three, when you first read it, it could be understood 
as a human being saying this to God. Yes, Father, yes, most willingly, I'll bear what you command me. My will conforms to your decree. I'll do what you have asked me. Now, that is found in the Bible, said by human beings. It's called the first covenant. You can find it in Exodus, where the people say, all these things we will do and obey, but they fail because of their sin because of their rebellious nature. No, the one saying this, yes, Father, most willingly I'll bear what you command me. My will conforms to your decree. I'll do what you have asked me. That's Jesus saying those words. O wondrous love, what have you done? Now, the word you would refer to the entire trinity. The Father offers up his Son. And why does he do that? Desiring our salvation. O Lord, how strong you are to save. You lay the one into the grave who built the earth's foundation. Yeah, I remember, was it Augustine who talked about this? I I could be wrong on this one. But... It's interesting that when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified on a wooden cross that he himself had created at the beginning of the world. He created wood. The spikes, the metal that were put inside him, he also had created. The thorns which embedded his skull that plant he also had created. And, and this is where Gerhardt kind of says, you lay the one into the grave who built the earth's foundation. And the earth's foundation, of course, is the ground. And yet, Jesus, the creator, is laid in the earth's foundation. Uh, last week, I was giving the Lenten sermon to a few congregations, and I thirst. And I borrowed this from Martin Charlemagne, who said, when Jesus said, I thirst, all the waters of creation wanted to rush to comfort him. But they were told to stand back. And no water came to him. Because he had to endure until the fulfillment of the promise of Psalm 22 came true, that he would be thirsty. Final stanza. Four, Lord, when your glory I shall see and taste your kingdom's pleasure, your blood my royal robe shall be, my joy beyond all measure. When I appear before your throne, your righteousness shall be my crown. With these I need not hide me, but there in garments richly wrought, As your own bride shall we be brought to stand in joy beside you. Now, I'm sure this stanza could be understood in regard to Judgment Day. When your glory I shall see, reminds me of Job, with my own eyes I will see him, which which means he has to have a, a new body after the resurrection. And taste your kingdom's pleasure, 
Remember, Jesus talks about not drinking of the wine again until the kingdom of God comes. Your blood, my royal robe, shall be. That's talked about a number of times in the Bible, that you're wearing the robe of righteousness. And that you received at your baptism. It kind of reminds me of the parable of what we call the prodigal son. He comes back trying to manipulate the father, and the father puts on him the best robe, the best shoes, and the best ring, so that he now has authority. My joy beyond all measure. When I appear before your throne, your righteousness shall be my crown. It's really important to understand that. Nobody is going to heaven unless God the Father regards them as totally righteous in his sight. And the way that occurs in Christianity, simply by believing the message of the gospel, God, therefore, declares you to be wearing the robe of Christ's righteousness. And, and therefore... You don't have to hide yourself from God. You can come before him fully dressed in the robe of Christ's righteousness and there in garments richly wrought as your own bride shall we be brought to stand in joy beside you. Now, there's no doubt that that could be judgment day. But upon further reflection, I got to think, I don't know if Paul Gerhardt had this in mind, this actually occurs for the Christian here on earth. Lord, when your glory I shall see and taste your kingdom's pleasure, your blood my royal robe shall be. Doesn't that remind you that we've already tasted the kingdom's pleasure because of baptism? We've had our sins forgiven. We've had the Holy Spirit in us. And in the Lord's Supper, we receive the very blood of Jesus as well as his body. And how many of us, after going through a divine service, do not have joy beyond all measure? When I appear before your throne, it's no mistake that the altar in the church is often regarded as the throne. And remember, the Holy of Holies, people were not allowed into except for the high priest on the Day of Atonement. But now, all those who are confirmed to receive the body and blood of Christ can come forward. And we also go to the throne, so to speak, to do our baptisms. Your righteousness shall be my crown. That's the crown we wear in contrast to the crown of thorns that Jesus wore. We don't have to hide ourselves behind our own righteousness because it's the righteousness of Christ. And they're in garments richly wrought. You, you may not be aware of this, but right now you are already dressed in the robe of Christ's righteousness. For sins of commission, you have received the gift of the forgiveness of sins. And for sins of omission, that is, good works you are unable to do or haven't done, you also receive the gift of the robe of righteousness. So from God's point of view, both kinds of sins 
are evaporated. Evaporated in the blood of Christ, who died on the cross. As your own bride shall we be brought to stand in joy beside you. Now that can definitely be referring to Judgment Day. And there's no doubt that that picture is found again and again. Jesus is the groom. We are the bride, the Holy Christian Church. But I believe that we're right now the bride of Christ as members of the Holy Christian Church, which is the kingdom of God here on earth, or sometimes understood as the kingdom of heaven. Because there's three heavens. There's the heaven called the Holy Christian Church. Then when we die, the interim between the time of our death and judgment day, and after judgment day, the heavenly kingdom where we live eternally with Jesus Christ face to face. So if somebody wants to ask you, who is this Jesus you're worshiping? A lamb goes uncomplaining forth by Paul Gerhardt would be a great resource for them to look at, to understand not only who Jesus is, but what he did for the whole world. I'm Tom Baker. You've been listening to Law and Gospel on this April the 9th in the year of our Lord 2019. Tomorrow is a Bible study for congregations and people in homes wanting to listen, whereby they can talk about it afterwards. God bless. Listen to Law and Gospel each weekday morning at 930 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law and Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.